following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I'm Andrew Shank, uh, the Director of Discipleship and Men's Ministry. In about 12 hours, I'll be the Pastor of Discipleship and Men's Ministry. But if I haven't gotten it, oh, thank you. <laughs> Wasn't fishing for it. Um, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you after being here almost a year, I apologize. I'd love to meet you, um, love to have you come to the service tonight. Uh, I have several guests in town. Uh, my old REF campus minister is here, one of my RTS professors uh, that are going to be preaching. I'd love for you to come and hear from those men who have really influenced me, and, and the fact that I'm standing here this morning is in large part due to them, so I'd love to have you come celebrate that with us. Well, as we turn our attention to God's Word, would you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 15? Uh, Just by way of reminder of where we've been through Exodus so far, we started off and Israel was in captivity. They were in a hopeless situation. They were in bondage. They had no strength to deliver themselves. Uh, they They were captive. They were oppressed. But God appointed a mediator. God appointed Moses, called him, prepared him, and sent him back into that land of darkness, that land of captivity, to call his people out, to bring his people out of darkness and death. Covered by the blood of the Lamb, they left Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea, and now, after singing songs of worship, they're on their way through a wilderness journey to the Promised Land. We've also said throughout our whole series that the way salvation works in Exodus informs the way salvation works for us. There's nothing I just said about Israel in the first half of Exodus that isn't true of us. We were in bondage, we were in slavery, we were captive to sin and to death and to darkness. But God appointed a mediator, Christ, and he sent that mediator into the world of sin and darkness to bring his people out. And we, covered by the blood of the Lamb, are now in a wilderness journey from here, from salvation, to the true promised land, to heaven. So just as Exodus informs the way we think about our salvation, the way we think about justification, We're going to see in coming weeks that Exodus informs how we think about our sanctification, how we think about our growth in grace, how we think about the way that we live the Christian life. This is a turning point in the book of Exodus. Uh, The people are finally free. They're finally out of Egypt. And all through the ten plagues especially, we heard Moses on behalf of God say, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may sacrifice to me in the wilderness. And if we're not familiar with Exodus, we should come to our passage today with some excitement, with some anticipation, because they're finally free. They're finally going to worship. We're finally going to see what it looks like to live in community with God. Well, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah because Marah means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. 
Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. But you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then skipping forward to chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the salvation that you have accomplished for your people. We thank you that in Christ we can be justified by faith, that we can be called to you. But now, fathers, we turn and look at this wilderness journey that we find ourselves on. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us to be sanctified by faith, to grow in Christ. Father, many times we read your word and it's hard uh, to see what your message to us is. But this morning it's clear. Uh, Father, we see ourselves very clearly in this passage. And I pray that as we, as we look at the problem and as we look at your response, Father, I pray that you would help us to put off a complaining spirit and to trust you. Show us Christ in this, in this text this morning, we pray. Amen. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Old Testament to New Testament, grumbling, complaining, is one of the frequent sins that's highlighted and exposed and spoken out against. 
Israel was really, really good at complaining. They were, they were accomplished complainers. Um, it doesn't start here. It actually started back in chapter 5 when Moses and Aaron had first come back to Egypt and they're, they're talking to Pharaoh, trying to get him to let the people go. Pharaoh responds by increasing their workload and the people grumble against Aaron and Moses. In chapter 14, after they've been brought out of Egypt, but before they've crossed through the Red Sea, they grumble again. They see the army of Egypt coming, they see the sea in front of them, and they turn to Moses and Aaron and say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Their grumbling before salvation is not that surprising. I mean, they're, they're facing threatening armies, they're in oppression, they're in slavery. What's surprising, though, is that right after they're rescued, right after they're saved, the same sins plague the people of God. They thought that salvation would equal an easy life, would equal a full life. They thought that freedom from slavery would mean satisfaction, abundant life, your best life now kind of life. And that's where many of us are. We're disappointed when we look at our lives now in contrast to what we were before we were saved. Or even when we were newly saved, we struggle with the same sins. God seems to be withholding things that we think we need. We thought that salvation would, would fix our marriage, would fix our kids, would make work tolerable, would make our bosses nicer. We thought that salvation meant blessing and prosperity from our point of view. And that's what I want to deal with today. How are we going to deal with the questionable, confusing, slow ways that God seems to be working in us as we walk this wilderness journey of sanctification? Why do we struggle with the same sin over and over? And when we do, how do we respond? Why does God seem to be withholding something he's promised me And how do I respond? This is the question I want us to enter into today. How are we to go about this wilderness journey of sanctification? We'll see first a wrong response to the the trials and temptations in this wilderness journey. And no surprise, it's grumbling. You can call it grumbling, you can call it murmuring, complaining, whining. It's all the same thing. We don't have to be taught how to grumble. Human beings know instinctively how to grumble, how to complain. And if If you doubt this, I simply invite you to take a car trip, a road trip, with some young children. Uh, At about minute 42, there won't be any questions left. Um, You'd take a road trip with college students or with adults, too, and you're still going to be convinced that human beings grumble. But children are especially good at grumbling. But it, it comes natural to us, but it's wrong. What's so bad about grumbling? Well, first we see that grumbling is living by sight, not by faith. Look with me at chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And at 16.1, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. And look at verse, or chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. At the beginning of each of these three stories, we get, we're confronted with a problem. Israel is confronted with a problem. In the first, they've been journeying for three days without water, and finally they see an oasis 
and they're excited, but they get there, and the water's bitter. It might have been poisoned, it might just be brackish, but whatever the case, it's unfit for human consumption. And so they're faced with a problem. They need something to drink. And the second, they're led into the wilderness. And if you remember from previous weeks, the wilderness is a place of testing because it's a place that doesn't sustain life. The wilderness can barely sustain the life of a dozen people who are really skilled at living there. It certainly can't sustain the life of a million people that are traveling with Egypt. They look around and they see wilderness, and the question is, what are we going to eat? And in the third story, they don't even see water. There's just a, a, a very felt lack of need. But because Israel is only living by what they can see, only living by the immediate situation they find themselves in, They grumble. They live by sight, not by faith. What would it have looked like for Israel to live by faith in this situation? Well, first it would mean for them to remember the past. Remember that they had just passed through the Red Sea. They had just survived the plagues. They had just been liberated from bondage by God. Would he bring them into the wilderness to kill them? And more specifically, when it comes to water, they had witnessed God turn the Nile River into blood. They had witnessed God part the Red Sea and dry the path between it. God is sovereign and in control over water. Why do they doubt his ability to provide for them? And remember last week in the Song of Moses, chapter 15, 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. But in our passage this week, they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. In the land of Egypt. The, the hand of the Lord they saw save them. Now they're, they're questioning his goodness. And think it's directed against them. They forgot the past. But they're also forgetting the present. Israel's living by, by sight. Is really living by tunnel vision. They only see the problems in the present. If they had just looked up. They would have seen a pillar of cloud. And of fire. That followed them through the wilderness. That led them through the wilderness. That protected them. That was God's presence with them. Would he just sit there and watch as this whole nation died of hunger and thirst? Of course not. He's their God. So they forgot the past, they forgot the present, and they forgot the future. They forgot the promises that God had made to them. The promises that God had made to Abraham, their father, that they would get to the promised land, that he would be their God and they would be his people. Dead people don't inherit a promised land. Dead people don't worship God in the wilderness. They forgot the past, the present, and the future. And because of their forgetfulness, they complain. That's the first problem. The first problem with our complaining is that it's living by sight. The second problem is that grumbling escalates. Grumbling is never satisfied in just mere expression. It just continues to build and to snowball. Look at chapter 15, verse 24. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Moses, as the author of Exodus, has to tell us that this is grumbling. Because if we just saw the question, we'd say, that's a very reasonable question. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of desert, there's a lot of thirst. What are we going to drink? It makes sense. But Moses tells us that it's grumbling, and we could almost explain that one away. But in 16.3, Moses tells us, the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're not just questioning anymore. There's escalation. They're ascribing sinister motives to their leaders. It gets even worse in chapter 17, verses 2 through 4. 
The people quarreled with Moses, said, give us water to drink. They're demanding. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They've gone from inquisitive to accusatory to now demanding quarrelsome, and even threatening. Grumbling and complaining is not satisfied in just expression. It builds and it grows. So those are the problems with Israel's complaining, that they're living by sight and that grumbling grows, grumbling festers. They're not different problems with our grumbling. We, too, live by sight too often and not by faith. We forget what God has done for us in the past. We forget the redemption Christ has purchased for us. We forget the presence of God with us now, that by his spirit, he lives inside of us. And we forget the promises of God for the future. We forget that he has promised us new heavens and new earth, that he who began a good work in us will complete it, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We too live by sight, not by faith. And our grumbling increases as well. When Trish and I were like two months married, we were on a road trip, Uh, from Charlotte, North Carolina to Northern Virginia, about seven hours to celebrate Thanksgiving with her family. And we took along our niece and nephew. So we've been married for two months, um, still trying to figure it out, and all of a sudden we're parents of a niece and nephew in the back seat for seven hours, like seven-year-old, ten-year-old, that kind of thing. Um, Before we're even out of Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte is, my nephew says, how many minutes do we have left? And I'm doing the math, and it's, you know, it's getting up towards 400, and so I'm not even going to answer that question. I just thanked him for asking and didn't say anything else. But it's just curiosity. How many, more, how many more minutes do I have to sit in this car? But as you know, it escalates. I'm hungry. I have to use the bathroom. He's on my side. She poked me. He looked at me funny. It gets worse and worse and worse the farther north we go. And at the end, we're like 15 minutes from, from Thanksgiving, and I make one, one, literally one wrong turn this whole trip. I mean, it's highway. There aren't that many turns. But one wrong turn the whole trip, and we're 15 minutes out. I make a wrong turn, and they are down my throat. How could you do this? You're so stupid. I can't believe it. We're never going to get there. We're very familiar with that kind of increased grumbling But we do the same thing. We as adults do the same thing. It starts with little character flaws, little habits, little inconveniences that annoy us. Then we ascribe intentionality to people. Oh, they must be doing that on purpose. And then we take action. I, I, I need to stop this. I need to get rid of this person. I need to change something about me or about them so that I don't have to run into this person anymore. Our grumbling snowballs and festers. So what's to be done? How do we combat this tendency that we have to grumble, to complain, to murmur? Well, the first thing is not even to look at ourselves, but to look at God and his response to his people's complaining. The first thing God does is God responds with provision. Look at chapter 15, 25. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Chapter 16, 13 through 15. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, 
flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. The people of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. In chapter 17, 5 and 6, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Look at the incredible mercy of God to provide for this complaining, grumbling people. God reaches down into their world and does a miracle. It's really comical to read uh, commentaries on these passages that try to explain what happened in naturalistic terms. Well, there's some insects that eat you know, the plants, and there's this secretion that they give that when the dew goes away, you can make it into bread. Or they talk about the migratory patterns of quail and how, you know, just happened to be the right time of year for all these birds to cover the camp day after day after day after day. Or, you know, there, there was really this wellspring of water under the ground that had slowly worn away at a rock, and Moses hitting it with his staff at just the right time made it open up and the spring of water come out. It totally misses the point. God reaches down and does a miracle to provide for his people. We're talking about more than a million people in a place that doesn't sustain life. And God doesn't just assuage their hunger. He satisfies it. He fills them. Chapter 16 says, Some gathered more, some gathered less. But when they measured it, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. God provides abundantly for his people, even in the midst of their complaining. And what about us? God has provided Christ for us. True bread, true water. Christ is the bread of life provided for us. After multiplying loaves and fishes uh, in Jesus' public ministry, some people come up to him and ask for another sign. They're not satisfied with that first miracle. They want something else. Um, Say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This bread in the wilderness was supposed to teach Israel that they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Moses says that to them in Deuteronomy, and Christ goes on reiterating the point. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread of life that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus Christ is true bread from heaven, provided for us that we might feed and be satisfied. And God provides for us water. God provides for us his presence with us in the rock that followed Israel through the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, I want you to know, brothers, our fathers, that is, this wilderness generation, We're all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In the same way that Christ was present with Israel in the wilderness and the rock, he's present with us by his spirit. And his spirit pours forth streams of living water in us that are to flow out of us into a weary world. God has abundantly provided for us in Christ. But God also responds to his people's complaining, not just with provision, but with patience. And this is seen most clearly in the middle chapter on manna. Chapter 16, verse 35, Moses tells us, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. The rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all this wilderness journey, and the whole time the people are fed and nourished by the manna and quail. Forty years, day after day, week after week, God was faithful and patient to provide for his people. But do you remember what else happened in those 40 years? Israel went to bed having eaten quail, woke up in the morning and ate manna, and worshipped a golden calf. Israel went to bed having eaten quail, woke up in the morning and ate manna, and grumbled, and rebelled, and complained against their leaders, and sinned, and, and followed after false gods. And yet, even in the midst of all this rebellion and all this sin, God, day after day, rains down bread from heaven on them. Look at the incredible patience of God. God is patient with us as well. But we should ask a question here. How can God be patient? We thought God was holy. How can he be so patient with this grumbling, complaining, adulterous generation? How can God be so patient with us when we grumble and complain and sin against him? God can be patient with us because of Christ. Israel was tested in the wilderness. Forty years they were tested to follow God. Christ was tested in the wilderness as well. But where Israel failed, Paul tells us that with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. But Christ succeeded in the wilderness. He rejected the temptations of Satan. He rejected physical food for the true food of the word of God. And because because he won... Because that victory is given to us, and because our guilt is given to him, we won. God can be patient with us because of Christ. That's not permission, that's not endorsement of our complaining and our grumbling, but it's patience, that we would grow, that we would, that we would see him as a father. His righteousness given to us, our sin given to him, we're forgiven. And so God can be patient with us. But just because our complaining is forgiven doesn't mean that we can go on doing it. So the last thing I want to talk about this morning is is how do we put off complaining? We've seen that God deals with the problem of it in Christ, but how do we get rid of it in our lives? The first thing, trust. Trust drives away complaining. And trust means living by faith, not by sight. We say that, we throw that around, but, but what does it mean? Well, it means living between two extremes. The first extreme is that God is out to get us. Trust in God means that he's not sinister, that he's our father. He's disciplining us because he loves us. He's not against us. On the other side, it means believing that our trials, our temptations, our struggles are not random. God is sovereign over the universe. Nothing is random. So God is, God is not arbitrarily testing us. Our, t- our trials are not random but he's also not sinister. In between those, we get to ask a question. We say, what does God intend to do in my life 
how does God intend to grow me in grace and in godliness because of this trial and temptation? They're not random. They're not sinister. They're for our growth and our development. John Calvin said about our passage today, God could have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter water to make prominent the bitterness which lurked in their hearts. When you feel the urge to complain, first first of all, it would be really good not to complain. The Bible tells us do all things without complaining. So when you feel the urge, try and resist it. But, But don't just do that and walk away. Enter into it and ask yourself some questions. Why am I about to complain? What is being threatened in my life that I feel like I'm being violated so that I'm justified in complaining against God? We complain when our idols are threatened. Israel's idol of comfort of safety, of predictability, was threatened by this wilderness journey. They didn't know where water was coming from. They didn't know where bread was coming from. Their idol of comfort and ease was threatened, so they complained. When you feel a desire to complain, God is giving you a window into your own heart if you'll look and see what the idols are in there that's causing you to want to complain. So one of the ways that we drive away complaining is this living by faith, living by faith in God, not by sight. And we don't have time today to go into a full conversation about the Sabbath. Uh, The rest of the book of Exodus, in some senses, is about the Sabbath. So we will come back to it. But it needs to be mentioned this morning. Part of living by faith is practicing trust. The Christian life is one of trust. And so we need need to develop this. We need to practice this. But a lot of times it, it feels theoretical or intangible. Trust in Christ's finished work, okay, I don't know what that looks like physically. Trust in God's control and love for us, okay, I don't see that happening right now, so that's hard for me to to wrap my hands around. Trust in the Spirit's work in our life, well, he's a spirit, I can't see him. Our trust, it's not theoretical, but sometimes it feels like it is. But every week, every week, we're given an opportunity to practice trust. The way that we celebrate the Sabbath, the way that we celebrate Sunday, is an opportunity for us to practice trust. Resting from our work says, God, I trust you that six days you've given me to work is enough to provide for my physical needs. Giving of our tithes and offerings is saying, God, I trust you that giving this portion of my income is not going to ruin me financially. Spending a day in worship, in community, in rest, is a a chance for us to practice trust and obedience to God who says, this time is time well spent. This obedience yields a good reward. The extra time for prayer and petition that we're given on Sunday is a chance for us to trust God, releasing our worries and our cares to him, that he will take care of us and the situation. It's an expression of trust. So my question to you as we close is this. If you recognize within yourself a complaining spirit, a tendency to grumble, to murmur, to whine against leaders, bosses, friends, family, traffic, jobs, government, strangers, on and on, if I haven't made it clear, I'm talking to everyone. For all of us who are complainers, how do we spend our Sunday? Are we taking advantage of the day a week that we're given to practice trust? Because the way that we spend our Sunday inevitably impacts the rest of our week. If we're practicing trust on Sunday, we can tolerate the inconveniences in our life. If we see the forgiveness of God in Christ, we can put up with the sin of others. 
if we practice trust faithfully on the Sabbath that's given to us, it will help us to trust God throughout the week and drive away complaining. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our world and we complain naturally, but as Christians, when it comes to the way we react to trials and temptations, we have an opportunity to be lights in the world, to shine brightly in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. I pray that we would let the light of Christ shine through us by the way that we conduct ourselves in the face of trials and temptations on this wilderness journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Um, Again, it's very clear to us and very convicting to us, even to me, Father, that complaining comes too naturally. Complaining is is a lack of trust in you. Um, So, Father, as we go out this week, I pray that you would remind us of your provision, remind us of the patience that you have for us and towards us. Father, help us to feed on true bread, to to drink from streams of living water, Father, connect us to Christ and help us to drive away complaining and grumbling and discontent. Fathers, we come to this table to feed on the true food. I pray, Father, that we would feed on you, that you would nourish us by your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.